back in uh, 2005, um, you know, over, uh, well, almost 20 years ago, Dr. Christian Smith, a distinguished professor of sociology at the uh, uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, gave um, the results of a research project that he had participated in, that he had conducted concerning the spiritual views of teenagers in the United States who identified as religious, many who professed, in fact, to be Christians. Now, remember, this study was done back in 2005. Smith and his co-worker, uh, co-author, suggested the dominant religion among teenagers at that time, um, who, by the way, if you think about it, <laughs> uh, those teenagers back in 2005, now in 2023, are now adults, either in their late 20s or early 30s, mid-30s, that the dominant religion among those teenagers at that time can be called, could be called moralistic, therapeutic deism. The creed of that religion goes something as follows. I think I have this on the screen behind me so you can read it. A God, number one, God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, the creed said, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Creed number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Deistic because its adherents believe that God is out there somewhere beyond, uh, uh, in the beyond. You know, they're uninvolved and unconcerned with, with our lives. Deistic. Moralistic because they also believe that God simply wants us to be good people overall in order for us to enter heaven. Moralistic. And then therapeutic, because they believe that the end goal and ultimate good is to feel happy in life. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now maybe some of you are here this morning and saying, whew, uh, Sutton, um, <laughs> Yeah, a little close for comfort. Um, and pastor, I mean, really, what, what's so bad about this belief? Um, I mean, I know a ton of people who would identify as Christians but would say, you know, the, the same thing. I mean, I think that way sometimes, right? I mean, what's the big deal? Are you saying that that's a bad belief? I am. I am. Why? Because that God is not the God of the Bible. Instead, it's a God of our own imaginations. <laughs> Oftentimes, see, I think without realizing it, every culture quietly molds and shapes our views of God. But I got to tell you, we can't grow in our relationship with God when we insist on relating to God 
as we think he should be. I mean, it's the same way in human relationships. Think about it. If I demand that you just meet my needs and conform to my assumptions about you, you'll probably feel cheapened and manipulated, right? A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, wrote this. To be right, we must think worthily of God. It's morally imperative that we purge from our minds all ignoble concepts of the deity and let him be the God in our minds that he is in his universe. That's why for the next five Sundays, here in the month of August, the first Sunday of September, we are going to be preaching a series that we've entitled Encountering God. And let me give you <laughs> uh, the goal right from the very beginning of this series, okay? Just as we begin this morning. The goal is that you and I, that we don't just learn more about God, but that we begin to think rightly and worthily about God. And as a result, <laughs> my prayer is that each of us, including myself, that we will personally encounter God as he really is. Each Sunday morning, during the week, as we think rightly and worthily about God, we encounter him as he really is. Now, to think rightly about God, um, what we need to do is we need to go to the Bible, right? So let's begin with the, what the Bible, I want to suggest, um, tells us is the essence of God. And that is God is a holy God. I mean, you read it throughout Scripture, right? Moses uh, standing there in, before the burning bush, fascinated by that bush because it was burning, yet it was not being destroyed. And God says to him, do not come any closer. Moses, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Exodus 15, Moses sang these words, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? In the New Testament, Peter is uh, encouraging the scattered believers who are all in exile. He reminds him, he says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. <laughs> I want to suggest to you, in fact, this morning that the most emphatic statement of God's holiness in the Bible is found in Isaiah chapter 6. So I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6 this morning, whether it's on your phone app, your Bible app on your phone, you take one of those pew Bibles out in front, uh, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We need to see this together. Um, we need to see Isaiah's vision together. Isaiah chapter 6. Now listen, as Isaiah uh, visits the temple, Okay, he goes into the Jerusalem temple and he has this vision, an incredible vision. And the vision is both visual and audio. What he hears reinforces what he sees. I want you to first of all notice what he sees. Verse 1 and 2. In the year that King Uzziah died, 
I saw the Lord sitting up upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. What Isaiah sees is he, he sees God's throne in an, in an elevated position, you know? His head had to go up. His sight had to go up. And, and, and this throne is not on the level of earthly thrones, uh, the thrones of the kings and rulers of Israel and of the other nations. No, God's throne is high and, and it's exalted above all of theirs, pointing to God's supremacy over the earth and God's supremacy over all human rulers. He also sees God's throne surrounded by the, the, the trappings of, of majesty. I mean, the royal robe, it, it reaches down all the way from heaven down to earth and into the temple and fills the, the temple. It's an extensive length, uh, captures not only the, the grandeur of, of God's sovereign rule, but also suggests that God's not remote. He, he's not indifferent to the struggles of his creatures below. No, he's in touch and he's present with us. Very quickly, Isaiah's eyes, they move from the throne of God to the angels that are tending the king of kings, seraphim. <laughs> These mysterious creatures are only mentioned here in the Bible. That name seraph or seraphim means fiery ones. And yet the fire and brightness of God, catch this, was beyond their ability to even be able to look at him. So they cover their faces, right, with two wings. And with two more wings, they cover their feet. Now, we're not sure why. Uh, I read some commentaries, different, different ideas of why. One suggestion is that um, because our feet represent our creaturelessness, um, that by covering their feet, what these angels were doing was they were acknowledging that they were in the presence of their creator. We don't know. But they covered their feet. And then with a third set of wings, what they did was they, they hovered over God. You know, the President of the United States is always surrounded by secret service agents, right? Why? Well, <laughs> it's because it's their job to make sure they protect the President at all costs. But what Isaiah sees here is different. What Isaiah sees is these seraphim who surround God, that they're the ones in need of protection. <laughs> Their wings don't cover him. No, instead they cover themselves in view of his holiness. Next, notice what Isaiah hears in this vision. Look with me. Verse 3, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. <laughs> the song of these angels, when you think about it, it's somewhat surprising, don't you think? I mean, after all, <laughs> um, what Isaiah has seen is this awesome picture of God's sovereignty, his throne and is high and exalted. Uh, his robe fills the, the temple. 
You might have expected a song that celebrated God's power and God's strength and God's authority. But instead, a song that celebrates God's holiness. Three times the angels repeat that word, holy, 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 holy. The Old Testament was originally, as we know, written in um, Hebrew. And when Hebrew language repeated a word, it was not just for a poetic style, uh, uh, an impression. It was a device that was used to say that something significant was being said here. I mean, repetition indicates importance. You know, in English, what we might do is we, we might uh, use an exclamation point or, or, or we might underline it. Or if we're speaking it, we might uh, raise our voice. So, for example, a, a typical um, sentence in Hebrew about our roads here in Minnesota after the winter we just had might read something like, uh, it wasn't just a pothole in the road. No, it was a pothole pothole. That means it was a heck of a pothole. <laughs> but when something's repeated three times... They're making the strongest statement possible. This is the only time, think about it, this is the only time in the entire Bible that we find an attribute of God repeated three times. Here, Revelation, Song of the Angels, holy, holy, holy. <laughs> it's a super superlative. One commentator, in fact, suggests that this repetition also includes the increasing of intensity as they sang it. In other words, God is utterly, God is thoroughly, utterly, God is perfectly, thoroughly, utterly, holy. <laughs> so then uh, we need to ask, what does it mean to be holy? I got to tell you, <laughs> we know nothing like God's holiness. I mean, most of us know that a holiness uh, involves being without sin, right? Without blame, uh, pure, perfect. But I got to tell you, there's more to it than that. The word literally means set apart or, or separate or wholly different or completely other. When we talk about, the, uh, about other attributes of God, we describe them in, in terms of uh, somewhat familiar to us, Right? When we say that God is good or God is trustworthy or God is loving, we can draw on experiences that we've had with people that we know who have those qualities. But holiness, which by definition is something different from or other than normal experiences, I mean, that's much harder to, to understand, right? Imagine with me, uh, a little ant is, is, is crawling there along the floor. As you watch that ant, um, do you think that little ant can understand the difference between you and it? <laughs> do you think it can comprehend anything more than the fact that the edge of your shoe is colossally larger than it is? <laughs> do you suppose the insect has any capacity to perceive the gap between the little nerve bundle in its head and the power of our ordinary human brains? And if even your or my little brain contains um, at least the potential to compose literature, uh, engineer skyscrapers, uh, design a space shuttle, 
unravel the workings of genes. I mean, what do you suppose is the capacity of the creator of this universe? See, God is to us, not even as we are to that bug, <laughs> but as we are to one of the tiniest subatomic particles that make up that little ant. On the scale from blind and puny to brilliant and powerful, there is small and there is big and greater. And then far beyond imagining, there is God. When we say that God is holy, we're saying that he stands apart from us. That he's different from, he, other than us, in terms of intelligence and power but I got to tell you, holiness also carries with it another sense, a sense of uh, uh, superior character. Our English word holy derives from a word that means well or whole. To say that God is holy is to say that he's not just intelligent and powerful, but it's also at a level that we can't imagine. It's also, uh, uh, he's also healthy in a way that... Um, we have no normal experience, nothing to relate to. Pastor Dan Maya illustrates this point when he tells about visiting a good friend in a hospital who was battling cancer. He says, it was immediately obvious to me that he was not well. Why? Because I'd known him before he had the disease. I spent all kinds of time around people who do not have the disease, and they do not look or feel anything like my friend now does. But what if I had never experienced life outside the oncology ward? What if I had been raised in a cancer ward and lived with the illness in myself daily? What if the only people I ever met had the disease too? Ravaged by illness, I might actually walk around considering myself quite well, or at least a whole lot better than those other people I knew at stage four. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, again, A.W. Tozer says it this way. God is the absolute quintessence of moral excellence, infinitely perfect in righteousness, purity, and rectitude. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by simply thinking of someone or something very pure and raising the concept to the highest degree that we're capable of. Well, God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. No, we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. God is holy, holy, holy. He's beyond our ability to understand or know. And God's holiness is why Isaiah responds the way he does. Look with me at verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Again, surprisingly, we don't read of Isaiah here in, in panic, do we? <laughs> Um, he doesn't seem to be confused or, or, or he doesn't seem to become defensive. No, instead, he's afraid. 
And his fear comes from the unworthiness, his unworthiness in the face of God's holiness. This from Isaiah, think about it. A prophet's prophet, a leader among leaders, uh, a man of nobility, an elder statesman, one who dialogue with kings and princes. Having encountered the holiness of God, Isaiah realizes that his fate is sealed, that his life is over. So he utters those prophetic words of judgment, woe to me, woe is me. Now, you don't hear those words, woe, very often these days, do you? <laughs> uh, but in Isaiah's day, it, it had a special significance. When prophets uttered that, um, a positive uh, message from God, they used the word blessed. For example, even in, in the Sermon on the Mount, remember Jesus oftentimes would re- begin each saying with blessed. Blessed is the one who mourns and who hungers, thirsts, and so on. But when proclaiming judgment, the prophets would say, whoa. In the New Testament, again, Jesus says this to the hypocrites. He says, Jesus says, woe to you, hypocrites. So when Isaiah encounters the living God, <laughs> he utters, woe is me. He proclaims judgment on himself. Then he said, I am ruined. The Hebrew word for ruined here, it means to be lost. Isaiah suddenly realized he had no basis by which he existed. He stood precariously in his immorality in front of pure morality. One glimpse of God and his holiness, and and he knew that he had nothing to bring. He had nothing to offer. He had no basis for justification. One glimpse of the holy God, and he disintegrated. He stood naked beneath the, the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. And as long as you and I, we compare ourselves with other people, you know what? What happens is we can, uh, we can sustain a fairly high view of our own character. But the instant Isaiah measures himself against the ultimate standard, he was destroyed. Morally and spiritually, he was blown away. Do you notice how specific Isaiah's conviction was? When Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips, he's not referring to swearing or or, or using filthy language. Isaiah doesn't say, I'm a man of unclean habits or a man of unclean thoughts. No, he's expressing really what's in his heart, what's what's in his mind. And Isaiah's response forces us also to look at ourselves us, ourselves, in the light of God's holiness. And when we do, we must too recognize our own sin, don't we? So how is it then that when George Barner surveys our churches that he can say 45% of us believe that all good people will go to heaven regardless of their faith? How is it that George Barner, when he does his survey, he surveys us that he says, uh, surveys say that 75% of us believe that people are basically good? There's only one answer. We have not truly perceived the holiness of God. If we really understood God's holiness for the glory it is, we would not have any question about our sin for the horror it is. 
we would see the distance. To find ourselves in the presence of a holy God, having trusted in our own wisdom, in our own power, in our own goodness. (laughs) I mean, that's like being a disease-carrying insect and suddenly looking up at the full height of, of someone who hates disease. <laughs> In that moment, you realize, if you've never had before, that there is human virtue, there's small and, and good, and then there's God. But I want to tell you, <laughs> the good news here is that God doesn't leave Isaiah crushed, does he? He gives him what I suggest is costly grace. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. When we think about coal, you know, I, you know start my grill. I got a pile of hot burning coals there. Think of coal touching someone's lips. (laughs) We pull back from that whole idea. That awful, purifying, catarizing hot coal on on our lips. I mean, you don't even want to think about it, do you? But rather than disfigure Isaiah's lips, the coal cleanses them. What an apt image it is after all, right? Here, the sweet burning of the divine kiss, the burning of our conscience, the hurting of our heart, where we hate looking at our sin and our need for a savior. And yet when we are kissed by that burning coal, we we recognize what it accomplishes. It's freeing. It's releasing. It's purifying. It cleanses our lips. And you know what that means? It means that we can sing with the angels, with the seraphim. Now we can join in the chorus. We can sing holy, holy, holy because he has made us able. Let me ask you this morning. Have you let God touch you in that way? Do you need his purifying, burning, divine kiss? This vision also explains, I think, one of the most pivotal events in all cosmic history, one which we're going to be celebrating just in a moment, sitting here on the table in front of us, one which is hard to understand without knowing that God is holy. That moment is when Jesus died on the cross. Do you know what the most terrible moment for Jesus was um, on that on that cross and that gruesome experience? It wasn't the physical torture, I don't think. I don't think it was the, uh, the, uh, the, the pain of it all, as horrific as it was. No, it was the fact that he who knew no sin would become sin. We talk about Jesus dying for our sins, that he took our place, that he paid the price for our wrongdoing. That means that the death of Jesus involved taking the sin of all of humanity upon himself. 
At that moment of his death, Jesus carried the weight of sins of the world, every rape, every murder, every lie, every betrayal, every adulterous affair, every act of child abuse, every hunger pangs from, uh, from famine, every winter chill from homelessness, every addiction, the sordid world of pornography, the change of slavery took it all. In a single blazing, soul-wrenching moment, the sins of the world were taken upon his shoulders. He carried all of your sins and my sins. All of your stains and my stains. All of your pains and, and my stains. All of, all of your evil and my evil. All of your darkness and, and, and my darkness. And he became that sin. And at that moment, for the very first time in all of eternity, the Father had to turn away. The community of the Trinity was shattered, and the Son was utterly, terribly alone in the, as the embodiment of sin itself. And then in the midst of that separation from the Father and the darkness of sin, Jesus would surrender his life to sacrifice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The holiness of God, the Father, could not look upon him. Who can stand before this holy God? Only those who by faith believe in him and follow him as their Lord. God is holy. He, he cannot bear sin. He cannot look upon it. He cannot, he cannot tolerate it. His only stance can be nausea and revulsion, condemnation and judgment. His only response is to burn it, to consume it, to crucify it. But because of his love for us, it wasn't our body on the cross. It was his. <laughs> God is holy. And only by faith in Jesus Christ can you stand before him. In the place of the burning coal, it was Jesus' death on that cross that has taken away our guilt and atoned for our sin. Jesus became our mediator with God. He became the Savior who, who perfectly and completely addresses the problem of our sin and our unclean lips. He makes us holy so we can be acceptable to a holy God. <laughs> the Bible says that for us as believers in Colossians 1, 21 and 22, it says, oh, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you what? You holy and blameless and above reproach before him. I put this passage of scripture in your outline. Take a look at it again. Note carefully the good news of verse 22. Because Jesus died the death you should have died. Through your faith in Jesus Christ, God will reconcile you to himself and present you holy in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, you can stand before this, this holy God because now you too are holy. Because Jesus was your substitute on the cross, <laughs> you can stand blameless before God. Who can stand before this holy God? By faith in Jesus Christ. 
You can. I want to invite you as we prepare for taking communion this morning to take just a moment before this holy God. Confess your sins. Spend some time just praising him and worshiping him this morning. Those who are serving communion, I want to invite you to join me up front at this time.